You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hey y'all, this is Josiah Gray, and this is Half Street High Heat. Hope you enjoy today's episode. What's up, everyone? It is Nick. I just wanted to give you guys a heads up of what to expect on today's episode. It's a really fun episode we have planned for you guys. We have four separate interviews, each from an NL East division rival. Uh, We have Destiny Lugardo covering the Phillies, Jake Mastriani covering the Braves, Mike Silva covering the Mets, and Daniel Alvarez covering the Marlins. And it's a really cool way to kind of get to know your opponent if you're a Nationals fan like we all are. And obviously the Nationals aren't as competitive as they have in years past, but it's cool to know who we're going up against in our division and whatnot. They each provide great insight into their team's offseason and kind of how they project for the 2022 season. So I hope you guys enjoyed. It was a really fun time doing it. So thank you to all of our guests for joining us and hopefully uh, you guys enjoy. All right. First up, we have Miami Marlins. Last season, they finished in fourth place, only 67 wins. But the Nationals only had 65, which, you know, goes to show just how bad the Nats were last season. But the Marlins made some significant improvements and were fairly aggressive during the offseason. Daniel Alvarez is going to join us and talk about just how different that Marlins club might look in 2022 and uh, if they can compete. Here he is. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Half Street High Heat, and it is a very special episode as we kick off our four-in-one NL East coverage. Uh, we are joined by Daniel Alvarez of Swing and Mishes Podcast, among other things. I mean, you are all over the Marlins coverage. Uh, Daniel, you can follow him on Twitter at Daniel Alvarez EE. 
Um, Daniel, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Nick and, and Amanda. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. It's definitely nice. We were talking before we started recording about the best time of the year, uh, you know, gearing up for the season and how it all came together after the lockout and whatnot. It's nice to feel uh, optimistic about baseball as a whole and rather than just doom and gloom with lockouts and graded out faces and whatnot. So definitely a great time of the year. And we are, like I said earlier, covering all of our NL East opponents. Daniel, obviously the Marlins, you know, historically, well, recent history, you know, not so great. Obviously, you can go back to the Christian Yelich, your John Carlos Stanton's, and how those turned out. But you know, 2020, they made the playoffs and they expanded playoffs. They have a very exciting, you know, pitching rotation and a lot of young stars. Jazz Chisholm, uh, I mean, awesome. I saw his ice cream gloves that he he was repping the other day. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. A lot of electricity going down there in Miami. What are your thoughts on the Marlins offseason as a whole? And, you know, did they do enough to really compete in 2022? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question because I, they, they were one of the most active, active teams before the lockout um, and people were kind of desperate after the lockout was over because um, every team in the analyst was, you know, they, they were making moves and almost Marlins, yeah, almost every team and the Marlins <laughs> were, the Marlins were uh, quiet and I, I, I remember telling people like, hey, this team before the lockout, they signed Avisail Garcia, they extended Sandy Alcantara and Miguel Rojas. Uh, they also traded for Jacob Stallings and Joy Wendell. So I, I think that with the pitching they have and now having more depth in the, in, in the roster, also the lineup and the bench, uh, it's going to be obviously a better, a better season for, for the Marlins. The thing is that uh, you see what the Mets are doing or the Braves or the, even the Phillies with the Castellanos and Schorber signing. And you think um, if they're really, if, if, it, if it's really enough for, for the Marlins to compete, I don't think they are quite there yet. Um, pitching, obviously, it's going to be the key for them because, uh, as you mentioned, the rotation, it's really good, led by Sandy and Pablo and Eliezer and Trevor Rogers and also Jesus Luzardo. Um, and I think they're an interesting team. I don't think they're quite that postseason team yet, but they are. They will definitely uh, compete more in, in 2022. Yeah, they'll definitely be fun to watch. They've got a lot of uh, really great pitching um, that um, everybody knows about. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Sixto Sanchez, who um, obviously had very high expectations um, a couple of years ago and, and, you know, with injury issues and things going on now, what do you expect from him at this point? And um, are, are, is the team really expecting him to be um, a part of, a part of this pitching staff anytime in the, in the near future? Yes, that's, that's what they, they hope for. And, and obviously, obviously everyone in Miami is, is hoping for six to two to return uh, at some point during the season. Um, but for now, uh, unfortunately, he's injured again. He, he had a setback on his shoulder injury. Uh, obviously, it was difficult for him to follow almost the, every medical step that he had to follow with, with the team because of the lockout, uh, because mm -hmm. he, he was rehabbing with them and then the lockout happened. And apparently the things were no, were not handled that well between him and the team. Oh, so that's a shame. Um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a real shame because Sixto is one of the most powerful arms in the, in the system. Uh, one of the best young pitchers in, in baseball. Uh, we, 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 we can definitely say that. Uh, but the thing is that um, yes, the shoulder injuries are, are very tough. 
for every pitcher, even more than Tommy John surgeries. And and if 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 you or if or if a pitcher in this case the six to he if he doesn't follow that with uh, discipline and, and a proper rehab, it's going to be very difficult for him to to be back. So that's that's an issue for for him. It's an issue for for the Marlins. Um, and gladly they they have. I wouldn't say enough pitching depth, but a good pitching depth, you know, to uh, fill that hole that maybe six to is, is leaving now. Uh, for example, they had Edward Cabrera uh, facing the Nationals today in spring training. So um, I think they, they're going to be good for now, but uh, it's going to be uh, a longer road for, for six to, to, to come back. Yeah. The Nationals, as our fans will know, uh, are not, uh, a stranger to young guys and, and injuries, <laughs> especially <laughs> the pitching, uh, pitching guy or uh, pitchers in in the road or excuse me, geez, I'm stumbling over my words in the minors specifically. Um, so it, it's always a running joke that Mike Rizzo loves his oft injured uh, big right-handers when it comes to the draft. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, as I understand, we're supposed to be rivals here, but I definitely want to see what Sixto Sanchez has uh, because that was obviously the, the prized uh, piece coming back in return for the JT Real Muto trade, which was obviously, a, you know, another NL East uh, rival for the Nats and Marlins. Um, so definitely would like to, that, you know, to really play out on field and, add to that already amazing young staff uh that was going to be my next question for you that staff we've talked about it already like it's very exciting led by you know sandy and and pablo and and all those guys do you think they have the experience the seasoning to really hold their own over uh you know 162 game season because it's a great staff on paper but they are young and relatively inexperienced do you think they'll hold up well Yes, I, I think they will because they they experienced that already last year. Uh, for example, Sandy, when when you see his career, I I was pretty shocked because I, I asked Sandy the other day that, that when he made his spring debut against the Nationals, like you have now six seasons in the big leagues. Could you believe that? Like I I don't I I wouldn't imagine that it, it was gonna, it was going to be like like that. And and Sykes, Sandy was like, man, I I, I can't believe it. Uh, because he made his debut when he was um, in, in 2017 with the Cardinals as a reliever. And then uh, he just, uh, you know, played a role as a starter with, with the Marlins in 18 and then 19 when he almost threw 200 innings and he threw 200 plus last year um, and, and not, not missing a single start during the, the 2021, uh, 2021 campaign. So I think Pablo and Sandy, of course, Trevor, after his great season last year, uh, they all have the experience. Same with Eliezer. Uh, Eliezer Hernandez, he's a guy that came uh, as a Rule 5 uh, draft guy, and he never played above A-ball. And he was able to establish himself into the rotation, then as a reliever, and then came back to the rotation, doing a, a pretty good job. The thing for him and, and for almost every single pitcher in that rotation is going to be health. Uh, because Pablo has been dealing with shoulder injuries over the years. Same with uh, Eliezer and the blisters and then the bicep strain that he had um, last year and then the quad injury. Uh, And same with Luzardo. Uh, Luzardo is going to be, for me, the most interesting case because uh, he's yet to to play for a full season in in the big leagues. Um, He has incredible incredible stuff incredible talent but he he was not able to figure it out in Oakland or in Miami last year 
but the job he or the work he put in during the off season and then for the early days of spring training with Mel Stottlemyre Jr., the, the Marlins pitching coach, uh, it was it, it's been awesome so far. So I'm I'm really excited to see uh, what can what can what can he do this year because uh, I think he has the stuff and now he's more mature, more experienced, and that's uh, basic basically applies for every single pitcher in the rotation. Yeah, I could not agree more that that rotation has the potential to be something really special. Um, One of the best. It's crazy to think of of Sandy having been in the big leagues for six years. It makes yeah makes me feel yeah, old. I, I didn't think that. <laughs> I was like, oh, me neither. And I was and I was writing the the story about him and his spring debut, and then I was like, dude, you have six seasons already in the big leagues. I mean, this is gonna be your sixth season, and he was like what this is what he can't believe it either yeah he, he couldn't <laughs> believe it either but it's it's so nice and, and to see his development and everything he's he's been through during his life uh you know it, it hasn't been easy for him but uh i think he he's ready to to make you know to take that next step and and i already i think he already did last year uh, had a couple of rough starts at the at the end of the season um but now he's i think he's just ready yeah I agree with that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Jorge Soler. Um, we mm. touched already on the offseason moves that they had made. Obviously, this is a big one, three-year, $36 million. Um, how's he look? What are you seeing? I mean, we saw him, and uh, he looked pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> Looked pretty he good from our end. But yeah. um, So, yeah, what are you seeing in spring training? Um, you know, kind of what's the expectation for him? Is Are the fans excited? Yes, I, I think the fans are, are excited. I, I don't think they're fully pleased with Soler because they were, or many of them, were expecting, you know, signing Castellanos, who mm-hmm. apparently showed interest interested to, to, to play here in, in Miami. Uh, also with Schwarber or a trade for Brian Reynolds with, with Pittsburgh. And they were kind of disappointed that none of them ended up uh, landing here. But um, I know that feeling. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 Soler, I mean, he he's pretty excited and he's very happy because he lives here in Miami, and he's been saying for for a long time now that um, he he wants to play here, that he wanted to play here, and now he's going to be able to to do it. He has family, friends living here in Miami for for a long time now, more than ten years, I believe, um, because he's he's been. I think he got to the States when he was just 16. Uh, so he was, he was pretty young coming from, from Cuba. Uh, and the Cuban community in Miami is huge. And so the fans are, you know, plenty of fans are, are excited to, to have Soler, Soler here. Now on the baseball side, um, I, don't, I don't think it was the best move, but at least, at least it's something for, for them. You know, they have more depth now more power in that lineup and they they needed that especially in a ballpark like Miami uh, that it's incredibly huge and not necessarily big as well <laughs> so to have Soler with Aguilar and Garcia and Garrett Cooper and also it also adds uh, experience because th- this guy has played two World Series with the Cubs and, and last year with, with the Braves and he ended up winning the, the MPP so um, he's very experience he, he's a great leader and that's something that i've been able to 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 see in the last couple couple days since he got here um everybody respects him so i think he's gonna be he's gonna be good here in, in miami because he he's gonna play for um 
his friends and, and family and, and he feels very good uh, uh you know by being here yeah i mean being in southern florida and you know just the, the weather and just the culture you can't do much worse so uh, yeah. that, that that would be you know a, a dream for anyone you mentioned the you know the interest in the rumors surrounding nick castellanos uh one thing that i honestly completely forgot about because of how you know the off season hit the ground running again post lockout was the Derek Jeter news. And mm-hmm. that, that was kind of surprising to me. I don't know if that was uh, the writing was on the wall within the market Marlins organization or anything, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Cause it definitely seemed like he wanted to sign Castellanos or just, you know, make a, a more concerted effort to go all in. And there was kind of disagreement uh, up above. Can you shed any light on that and what went down? Yeah, it was surprising because this was the last year of his contract. And, and I was kind of expecting, you know, Jeter to, to step down by the end of this year. Um, we, we mentioned that in, in, in the Swings and Missions podcast in, in Spanish with Oscar Prieto and also um, discussed that with um, people here in, in Miami. But we were definitely not expecting Derek to, to part ways with, with the team, uh, you know, at this, at this point of the year or that point of the year, because weeks before we saw him in camp watching the minor leaguers. So it was really surprising. Um, but yes, um, what you mentioned at the end, it's, it's, it's something that it really happened. Uh, lots of disagreements with the ownership, with the rest of the ownership group, especially with Bruce Sherman. And also, I don't think they were uh, very happy with the job he was doing here, uh, or at least um, they thought he was not... Um, you know, they had higher expectations for, for Derek and, and Derek wasn't able to, to deliver on, on the way they, they expected. So um, that's basically what, what happened. Lots of disagreements. And also they were expecting more. And, and unfortunately, uh, those things didn't happen. He, he, he brought many people from, from New York and other organizations to um, have a, a, a competitive team. And, and as he mentioned, a world-class organiza- organization I think they did, or Derek did, lots of great things here in, in South Florida. Uh, but yes, they they were expecting uh, a little bit more, and, and unfortunately, it didn't happen. I I I don't think it's we we, we can say that uh, there, those things are not going to happen because he basically built the whole base that the Marlins have now, and, and we're still we're yet to see what's going to happen in in twenty twenty two or even in twenty twenty three. So. Uh, I think we still got to wait a little bit, um, but yes, uh, that's basically what, what happened with, with him and the ownership group. Yeah, it was definitely kind of shocking for some, I guess for me, I didn't, I don't follow the Marlins organization um, as closely as the Nats, obviously, but uh, it was definitely surprising. So, but as you said, the writing, I think was on the wall. Um, he, the, the Marlins had not performed as, as I think anyone had hoped since he took over. Yeah, um, but speaking of him bringing people from New York, um, I know you guys have some new coaching staff and also a new uh, color analyst. The last time I looked, I hadn't seen who that um, color analyst was. Um, so it sounds like there's more changes going on in the organization than just Derek Jeter. Um, are they doing more of a kind of concerted shakeup to try to, to change things? Because as you mentioned, they were very active um, in free agency. And, and are, they, are they trying to kind of put a different face on the team for this year? Yeah, I think it's it's more, uh, yes, different faces, but basically the same philosophy because they they brought uh, Marcus Thames from New York, 
who was the Yankees hitting coach. Mm-hmm. And they also they also have now Al Pedrique, Alfredo Pedrique, a Venezuelan coach, as their third base and infield coach. And and Al Pedrique, he he won back to back manager of the year award um, in the minors with the Yankees. So he knows that philosophy hundred uh, percent well. He ma- he got to manage guys like Gary Sanchez and Luis Severino and Aaron Judge and plenty of the Yankees players that are now in the big leagues that are. are you know, stars like Judge and and, and and Sevi and now Gary, of course, with, with the twins, but he knows them very well. Um, and he's just a true pro. Uh, Al, same with Marcus. And and as I mentioned, they, they they have been with the Yankees recently. So it's basically the same philosophy, although those are new faces. It's it's the same philosophy. And the new color analyst is um Rod Allen who used to work with the Tigers, you know, in, oh, okay. in sports Detroit. So uh, Rod is a very, very nice guy, um, great analyst. And he's been there with the team almost every day, uh, getting to know the players and the staff and the uh, executives and beat reporters. And, and he's, you know, very open to share his thoughts and, and everything about the game. So I, I think it's really good. He did a, um, an awesome job. I remember listening to, to Rod as a, as a young kid in, in Venezuela uh, because, of course, we were following Miguel Cabrera everywhere. Right? <laughs> so, so we had to listen to, um, to many of Rod's um, broadcasts. So, yes, I'm, I'm very happy with him now being here in Miami. Oh, that's a good get. I didn't, even know, I didn't know that. That's yeah, really I had looked get. it up and I didn't see yet, but I guess the article I read was from a few days ago. So um, that's great. Yeah, that's a, that is a good get. And I think he's going he's gonna to do a great job. Yes. Yeah. I mean, color analysts are super underrated. Like, uh, I mean, oh, we yeah. can go, go into a completely different conversation about that, but I, I, I love <laughs> yeah. we're getting a new one this year an- too. Yeah. Here yeah. Yeah. Good color analyst. Who's going to be a new one? Uh, Kevin Franzen. We've got Kevin Franzen. He came oh, up cool. from the, okay. yeah, the Phillies radio yeah. broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. Former Nat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very excited to, you know, get a taste of new color analysis across baseball and just obviously get more baseball than we've been getting the past couple of months as well. Um, Daniel, I wanted to end with some rapid fire questions about the Marlins uh, starting off. What you, expectations for the season? What, what position in the NLEs do you think the Marlins will finish in? I think the Marlins will finish fourth in the NLEs just ahead of the Nationals. <laughs> Well, I appreciate I mean, I, your honesty, but it still hurts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it still hurts, but I would agree. All right. Who will be the Marlins team MVP? The Marlins team MVP. I'm going with um, Sandy Alcantara. Okay. Well, that probably answers my next question. Would it be safe to assume he's going to be the team Cy Young as well? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I think, I think um, Aguilar was the... MVP last year. I actually voted for him for the uh, local awards um, and he had to share the award with Sandy, but I think um, Sandy with the way he's going to be, um, or he might be able to to get again, uh, you know, plus 200 innings and 200 strikeouts and I don't know if he can get up to 16 to 17 wins uh, mm-hmm. now with the offensive support that he should have now. <laughs> I think he's going to be just as valuable as any other player in the in the division. I'll tell you what, he is a force on MLB the show. So yeah, oh I, yeah, I, that I that sink that sinker at ninety seven. Yeah, it's yeah. impossible. It is impossible. <laughs> All right. Who is one player that's not getting a lot of buzz that you know Nats fans or just baseball fans in general should keep their eye on? 
Um, well, come coming up now, uh, I think Edward Cabrera. Uh, I think pe- many people forgot Eddie because of the rough starts that he had. Um, you know, when when he made his debut last year, but Eddie Cabrera is going to be just so good for for this team uh, with the stuff with the stuff that he has. He has Sandy and Sixta stuff combined. Um, wow, and that's he, high praise. And he, and no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. And he he has an incredible work ethic, and he's going to be maybe as good as Sandy. Uh, many people in the in the in the organization say that he's the best arm in the, arm in the system. So I think Eddie might do just as good as him whenever he he established himself in into a rotation, you know, every every five days. That is uh, scary to think about if they know. you know yeah. all reach their potential yeah. within the same yeah. rotation. Oh wow. <laughs> all right. Um, and last question we have for you. What's one bold prediction for the Marlins this season? Ooh, um, bold prediction for the Marlins this season. Um Okay, I I don't I don't think this is for for the team, but it is for a player of the team. And yep. I say that uh, Miguel Ro, Miguel Rojas might finish, um, might might end up winning the Gold Glove Award at shortstop. Interesting. I like that. I like, that. That, that's I like it. That's mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, he. I, I know is, he's a I know he's a Nats killer, but I was just uh, about to mention that he is <laughs> yeah. like our arch nemesis when we play the yeah. Marlins. Like he, he, he's I, one of those people where you see him come up to the plate and you're like, oh, right. oh yeah, man. it's 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 incredible. <laughs> it's incredible to think that about him um, because th- this is a guy that I've been seeing since I was ten or eleven years old, and Miggy was like nineteen, making his debut in in Venezuela as a rookie, and. The, the feeling that people had when he was coming up to a play, it's, it's like, oh, that's a safe out for for the team now because he there's no way he can he can hit it. Uh, but now he he became a, a very respected hitter in the big leagues, and I'm very proud to see what he has accomplished over over the years. Obviously, his glove is his uh, you know presentation card, and 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 he he's known as a magician with the glove. But um, I'm happy to see you know, the hitter that he has become over the years. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it top to bottom, it's just really hard to root against the Marlins. <laughs> like I, I know you're, <laughs> this is so many good stories. Yeah. you're, you're so immersed within it, but I, I, it's so hard to root against the Marlins. They are yeah. just so fun to watch. And obviously with all these young guys, you know, looking to, you know, really make a name for themselves and, and establish themselves as like premier guys, it's just must watch. TV and as a Nationals fan, it's going to be you know nice to be able to focus on the Marlins rather than how the Marlins are killing the Nats. <laughs> so can't wait for that, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, all of our followers. Be sure to follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Alvarez EE, and be sure to check out the Swings and Mishes podcast, which Daniel does uh, in Spanish as well, which is awesome as well daniel thank you so much for joining us we'll definitely have you have to have you back on in the season for uh, one of the the season previews or the no, previews, I, no amanda and nick thank you so much for for having me i enjoyed it and you know anytime you guys need something i'm gonna be here for you thank you so much thanks so thanks, much daniel. daniel all right big thanks to daniel alvarez for joining us it was a great interview and you know learned a lot about the marlins and how they project into 2022 and uh, he's also a great follow on Twitter, so be sure to do that at Daniel Alvarez EE on Twitter, and you can catch him on the Swing and Mishes 
podcast. Uh, both languages, too, if you uh, are bilingual yourself. All right. We are not necessarily going from the bottom to the top because the Marlins are only in fourth place, but we are going to the top, and that is the World Series champion Atlanta Braves, unfortunately. But they were the top of the league, also top of the division. It was a weak division, but they were still at the top. We are joined by Jake Mastriani of the Locked On Braves podcast, among other things. Uh, you can give him a follow on Twitter at shortstopball. Really informative interview on the World Series champions, and here he is. We are now joined by Jake Mastriani, host of Locked On Braves and co-creator of the Tomahawk Take FS. You guys can find him on Twitter at shortstopball. Thank you so much for joining us, Jake. How are you doing today, man? Yeah, thanks so much, so much for having me on. Really do appreciate it, and I'm I'm doing great. Baseball season is basically upon us right now, so really pumped up, exciting to get the 2022 season going. Yeah, you, you you say baseball season's here, but it's currently 29 degrees outside right now, so it is not. <laughs> Yeah, it's like baseball season. <laughs> yeah, well, I live in Alabama, so it is 70 and sunny here. We're ready. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm jealous. It's not that nice here in D.C. today. But looking back at 2021 pretty quickly, quite a turn the season was for the Braves. Come July, it seemed like they're destined to be watching the playoffs from the couch. You know, Acuna goes down with his ACL injury. Things are not looking good. But the front office was rather aggressive at the deadline and you know, you guys got hot and the rest was history. This offseason was there were some pretty big storylines, most notably the Freddie Freeman situation. Um, there's a report by John Heyman that AA, GM of the Braves, for those who don't know, noted that the locker room was a little shooken up after the Freeman situation in his departure. Do you think a team losing the heart of their franchise with Freeman will be impacted by that? Or will new toy and Matt Olson heal any potential issues that could potentially be in the clubhouse? There'll be there'll be some impact for sure. I mean, you don't lose a guy like Freddie Freeman, who's been with the team for 12 years and been a leader in that locker house and not have, you know, some sort of just shock. You know, he was the guy that everybody looked to. But, you know, this team is is so loaded. It has a lot of great clubhouse guys in it. Um, I think they'll quickly get over it. You know, Matt Olson, you couldn't have asked for a more perfect replacement for Freddie Freeman than Matt Olson, who is from Atlanta, um, you know, now joins Dansby Swanson, who's also from Atlanta and, and may, you know, take over that clubhouse leadership role or, along with uh, Ozzie Albies there as well. So I think they're, they're focused, they're, they're ready. You know, they're saying all the right things, doing all the right things. Once the games actually start, I think all that kind of goes out the window and they just focus on trying to repeat as World Series champions. Yeah, it was kind of brutal seeing as a Nats fan, obviously, it was kind of brutal seeing them able to go get a guy like Matt Olson, because Matt Olson is obviously a very, very good uh, first baseman in his own right. I, I was hoping if Freddie Freeman did leave, you would replace him with like an Eric Hosmer or something just, you know, <laughs> so it, it would hurt a little bit less. But obviously that team is still very, very good, very deep and uh, ready to repeat as champions. Uh, what like let's put the the you know Matt Olson move to the side uh for a second because obviously that's I think safe to say your your prized move of, of the offseason what was your favorite move of the offseason and in, uh conversely what was like the missed opportunity what was the one area you, pr- you might not have addressed fully in the offseason I'd say 
I'd say probably the Kenley Jansen move was my favorite move of the offseason because it's the one that caught me off guard the most. I thought Alex Anthopoulos was done spending, and then he goes out and gives Kenley Jansen $16 million to be the team's new closer. And now a bullpen, which was already looking to be a strength going into the season, is now possibly one of the best bullpens in all of baseball. And you're not just Kenley Jansen. They had already added Colin McHugh before that. So this bullpen's just, you know, incredibly deep right now, which I think is going to be very important to get through this 2022 season, especially early on coming out of a shortened spring training. So that's the move, you know, that I probably enjoyed the most just because I thought we were done. And then you go out and get one of the best closers in all of baseball. The, the move that maybe didn't get made, Honestly, I don't know that there there is one. I probably think the the biggest one is maybe not getting another veteran rotation piece. Um, not necessarily, you know, a top of the rotation or even, you know, a number three starter, but at least a veteran for the fourth or fifth spot to eat some innings. Now, the young pitchers have looked really good in spring training, and they may not – you may not need that. But I was a little surprised Alex wasn't able to find – some sort of veteran, you know, on a three, four million dollar deal to come in and and try to eat some innings and ease some of these young pitchers into the rotation. So that's probably the only move I'm surprised hasn't gotten made. Of course, there's still time left and it could happen, but that's probably the one move left out there that I was surprised didn't get made. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the Braves bullpen in a second, but you mentioned the rotation. I kind of wanted to ask about that. So right now they got Max Freed and Anderson at the top. Charlie Morton is, they might take a cautious approach to them. He might be back ready, but the back half of the Braves rotation, as you said, it's kind of full of inexperienced young guys. They got Wright, Davidson, Tukey, Cool, and Moeller. Do you think that's enough depth like that they can rely on? Do you think these young guys can be good enough? Or do you think the Braves will realize that, hey, this was a mistake. We probably should have gone like a cheaper three, four veteran in our rotation. I think they all have the capability of being good and sticking in the rotation. I think Kyle Wright is the key guy. He's a fifth, a former fifth overall pick, you know, has struggled in the past at the, at, the, at the major league level, but came in in game four of the World Series and pitched four and two-thirds brilliant innings, had a great season at AAA last year. He's 26 years old. He's the guy I'm looking to to kind of step up and solidify a spot in the rotation and become – you know, that next arm in the starting rotation. Waskari Ainoa is another option, too. He was really good early in the season last year for the Braves. Had a run of, like, 12 straight starts that were just really good. Then he got mad and punched a wall, and that pretty much ended his season. He wasn't the same when he came back. So I think he'll, he'll be good. Tucker Davidson's another guy. Kyle Muller had some, uh, some good starts last year as well at the big league. So they have you know, plenty of guys with big league experience, and some of them have had big league success for limited periods of time. So you know, I think they're more than capable of stepping up and feeling out that back of the rotation. But that is one of the bigger question marks going into the season is who is that guy going to be? How long does it take? You know, does it happen quickly? And if not, you know, how quickly does Alex Anthopoulos react to that? Yeah, I mean, I think those are pretty good problems to have when you can name all four or five young guys who could easily fill in the rotation. Circling back to the bullpen for a second, I've seen them being called the night shift on Twitter. I think that's their unofficial official nickname that they got going on. 
you mentioned some of the names that you guys got Yates, Jansen, among the others. What's your expectation for this bullpen? You know, like bullpens on paper can look great and then be terrible, but they also look terrible on paper and be great. It's kind of a, a weird position, but what are your expectations for this bullpen in 2022? Yeah, I've gone on record multiple times and saying bullpens are so finicky year to year. It's really hard to predict what bullpen arms are going to do season to season. But at least on paper, this bullpen seems really strong and has some veteran pitchers that have proven it, gotten it done at the major league level before in Kenley Jansen, Will Smith, A.J. Mentor, Tyler Matzik, Colin McHugh, Luke Jackson, Kirby Yates possibly coming back mid-season. He was one of the best closers in all of baseball just a couple of seasons ago. So when you come into a season with that many bullpen arms that have experience at the major league level, have a good pedigree of success at the big league level, that's just going to set you up, you know, to have a good bullpen. You're always going to have those, those arms that regress. And you're always, you're also going to have those arms that maybe surprise you, but to go into a season, having six, seven arms deep that, you know, have gotten it done in the past, you know, can do it still now, you know, you can't ask for more than that as a fan. Like I said, you never know how bullpens are going to work out. We thought coming into 2021 season, the Braves bullpen would be really solid with Smith, Matzik, Minter, Jackson, Chris Martin, those guys at the back end. And they really struggled in the first half of the season, especially that was the biggest question mark for the Braves going into the postseason. And then all of a sudden they flipped a switch and started pitching like we thought they could. And that's when they got the name, the night shift. So you don't know with bullpens year to year, but at the very least, Alex Anthopoulos has put together a very deep bullpen and has set them up to be successful early on in the season. Yeah, with bullpens, it's like you said, it's finicky. You never really know. Uh, It feels like more teams in baseball have poor bullpens or below average bullpens, whatever the average is than good bullpen. So I think depth is definitely the way to go. And it seems like the Braves have that uh, locked down. Uh, and another thing the Braves have locked down, uh, which is obviously just music to Nats fans' ears, is the infield. Uh, probably one of the de- or one of the best infields in baseball. You know, top to bottom, uh, left side, right side. There's not <laughs> not many holes there. But I wanted to focus on the left side in particular with Austin Riley and Dansby Swanson. It's kind of a two part question. One, Austin Riley really had his breakout season last year. Do you expect him to be able to repeat that? Because the bar is pretty high right now. And two, what's the general, uh, you know, thoughts on Dansby Swanson within, you know, the Braves community and fans and whatnot? Because obviously he was a number one pick, hasn't quite lived up to the hype, at least from the outside looking in. So I wanted to get Braves fans thoughts on Dansby Swanson. Yeah, Dansby Swanson's a very divisive player amongst Braves country. There are those who just, absolutely love him think he thinks he should be the brave shortstop of the future and then there's those fans who just can't stand him thinks he's a terrible shortstop and they need to move on i'm on the side of i love dansby swanson i think he's a winning type player no he's not one of the best shortstops in the game maybe not even top 10 but he does things in the game that are going to win ball games for you and that's very important especially at a shortstop position where I think he's a little underrated defensively just because of the instinctive plays that he makes. I think it makes him a better defender that maybe doesn't show up in the analytics. 
and he hit 27 home runs last year. So I think he gets hurt by the fact that he was drafted one overall. He was not the best prospect in that draft, as you most likely know. You know, MLB draft is not always about taking the best player early in the draft. It's about figuring out your bonus pool and how to how to allocate that out throughout the draft. Um, but he's kind of hurt by that first overall pick because everybody expects him to be an MVP, to be an all-star. And yes, he hasn't reached that level, but he's still a really solid player and an average to above average player. And with what the Braves have around him, that's all you need him to be. But this is a big year for Dansby Swanson. It's his final year in arbitration. He could become a free agent after the season if the Braves don't look to extend him or lock him up. So I'm expecting big things from Dansby this year, uh, and then we'll see what happens in the future. As far as Austin Riley, I've gone on record on Lockdown Braves several times now saying I need to see what he does for a follow-up because you know he struggled a bit his first couple of years in the big leagues, and he made some noticeable adjustments last year and all of a sudden put together an MVP-level season. I don't know that we ever see that great of a season from Austin Riley again. I mean, again, I thought he should have been much higher in the MVP voting. He finished seventh. But he doesn't have to be that to be a great player for the Braves. You know, instead of hitting 300 like he did last year, Kendall does he hit 270 with the 330 on base and 30 home runs. You know, that's what I think Austin Riley can be. And that's still a really good player, potentially an all-star level player. But I, I need to see him follow up last year's performance 2021 season. I need to see him do that again in 2022. I think that he will because I think he has made those noticeable adjustments, you know, not chasing those sliders away as much, waiting for the pitch to come into him. He has made some big adjustments since coming up. So I think he will play at an all-star caliber level. I would not be expecting, you know, MVP type performances every year from Austin Riley. Yeah. I mean, last year he was arguably top five third baseman. And even if he regresses a little bit, he's probably still a top 10 third baseman. So there'll be too much upset about that. Looking at the outfield, Braves outfield is rather crowded right now. Um, they brought Rosario back. Ozuna's coming back from his off the field issues. They also have Duvall and Heredia. That's before Acuna comes back. When Acuna is back, I believe they said in May, he's going to be moving back out to the outfield. Who is the odd man out and how can this outfield look from left field, center field, right field once everyone's back and healthy? So once Acuna is back and healthy, it's most likely going to be him, Duvall, and Rosario in the outfield with Ozuna at DH would be my guess. Um, there's been talks about uh, Acuna going back to center field. I don't really love that idea coming off the ACL injury, just adding more stress to that. But that's most likely how things will play out once he is back. It'll be a little bit more difficult, you know, when he is back and just has the DH, because then you potentially have Ozuna and Rosario in the corners with Duvall in center field, and that is not an ideal defense. <laughs> um, but that is most likely how to work. It'd be great if the Braves had a center fielder. You know, they had a prospect like Drew Waters that perhaps, you know, earned a midseason call-up, and that way you can put Acuna in right field where I think he will win a gold glove one day. 
Um, so yeah, it's a little crowded now, but that will work itself out. But most likely, you know, it'll be Acuna, Duvall in right field, Rosario in left with Ozuna DHing once everybody's healthy. Just kind of annoyed at how many different possibilities y'all have. Uh, meanwhile, Michael Franco's the national starting third base. Kind of wish they had any talent. I mean, we can go on and on about the Nats starting lineup. Like it doesn't stop at Mark, Michael Franco, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like to be good right now? Um, What would you say is the biggest hurdle for the Braves path to repeating right now? Um, I mean, health. I mean, I know that's kind of a cop out to say, but with the team that Alex Anthopoulos has built and I've, and I've been saying this on a lot of podcasts I've been doing lately is, Alex Anthopoulos has built a team that can win a division, can win a World Series. And that's all you can ask for as a fan going into a season. You know, is your team good enough to compete and to win? And this Braves team is that. You look at them on paper, and I think you can match them up with any team in baseball and say that on any given day, you know, our best can beat your best. And that's all you can ask for as a fan. And when you have that, that is the case. The only thing that can really hold you down is you know underperformance from certain players you know what if Riley does have a big regression you know what if Matt Olson struggles with the transition from American League to National League he kind of folds under the pressure of replacing Freddie Freeman what if Acuna re-injures his ACL what if one of the big three starters gets injured I mean those are things that you know most teams are going to fear going into a season but on paper, this team is built to win, and I, I believe that, like I said, on any given day, the Braves play their best, the Dodgers play their best. I feel like the Braves can win that game. Well, I mean, you guys kind of proved it in you know your run last year. I mean, best is at, you know left up to interpretation. I don't know that that the Dodgers are at the best, but the Braves clearly proved that you know you can go toe to toe with them and beat them in, in a best of seven series, and you're. Like I said, off the top, very well geared to do that again, unfortunately for Nats fans, but you know, it is what it is as a, a life being uh, a life of a Nats fan right now. But uh, we want to, to kind of give you some rapid fire questions uh, about the you know brave season. So if you had to, you know, today is March 29th, you know, sit here and say what place the Braves will finish in, in the NL East, what, what would you say? I'd say first. I would tend to agree with you. All right. Who's going to be the team's MVP? Ronald Acuna Jr. Yeah. I mean, you could probably pick like four different guys, unfortunately. <laughs> Who's, uh, what about the Cy Young? Max Freed. We talked about Max Freed. Actually, he's sort of like the, uh, maybe not quite to the level that's high expectations, but sort of like the Jacob deGrom thing where like, where, you know, the Mets made their run and then, you know, deGrom was viewed as like the third best in that rotation. And then he ended up being the best. It feels like that's kind of what Max Reed is turning into. Although Soroka obviously had a a devastating injury, but Max Reed is (laughs) quite, quite good. And then if you had to give, uh, you know, someone, you know, a dark horse, someone that nobody's talking about, who's your dark horse player to watch for the Braves. Um, uh, we kind of already talked about Kyle Wright. Um, I think he can be a, a dark horse to kind of just step up in the rotation. I think everybody else is pretty much already known though. So, um, you know, whether it's 
Olsen, Albie, Swanson, Riley, Ozuna, Rosario, Acuna, Duvall. I mean, these are all established players. Um, I don't see any of them necessarily breaking out at this point, even, you know, Travis Darno, a veteran um, catcher in his own rights. So, you know, there's not really, they don't really have that breakout candidate. Most of their players have already broken out and are proven, proven big leaguers. So, um, I mean, we just talked about Max Freed and, you know, I think kind of to your point, I think maybe he's even still a little underrated. I think he has the potential to win a Cy Young if he stays healthy all season. Maybe he breaks out on more of a, a national scale as one of the best pitchers in all of baseball because I don't think many people realize that he is. You go back and look at his second half last year, he was the best pitcher in all of baseball. So I think in that regard, you could see potentially him kind of break out as a more national nationally known starting pitcher man it is not fun talking about the braves <laughs> like they're just good <laughs> oh man um last two for you in our rapid fire what is your win-loss prediction for the braves so uh, i have them winning 90 94 games um I don't know what the losses are with that. I'm not great at math, but I have them at 94 wins, which I think could win this division. Um, you know, obviously a lot happens throughout the season. You have the trade deadline, but I'd say right now I'd, I'd peg them for 94 wins and the NL East is just going to be so tough. I, I did, wrote an article on the Bakota projections today and even the nationals, they have winning 70 games and it was the only division where, every team won at least 70 games. So it's going to be a highly competitive division. I think, you know, 92, 94 wins could win the division. So, you know, I think they, I think they can win 94. I think just on paper, they look to be a 94 win team right now. Yeah. I, I, I have them around that in my prediction. I saw Fox sports had their over under for the Braves at 88.5. And I feel like that's the easiest bet in the world to take that over. Honestly. Yeah, if they only win 88 games, it's something something went wrong Health this year. Or or the yeah. NL or the NL East was just that dangerous that they beat up on each other that much. But one team seems to always kind of regress, and hopefully it's not the Braves. <laughs> yeah, Mets will find a way. And then yeah. the last question we have for you today: what is one bold prediction that you have for the Braves 2022 season? Um, one bold prediction. Uh, it's not bold, but I want to see Ron Acuna Jr. stay healthy and win an MVP. I'm not necessarily a, a bold prediction. That's just something I want to see happen. Um, I will say that Dansby Swanson makes the all-star game. Uh, I think he's in for a big season. Like I said, a contract season. Um, he's just you know 28, which is kind of hard to believe. He's been with the Braves for a while. He's still just 28 years old in a contract season. I just think he's going to have a good year. I think he's finally going to put together that year. We all thought he could have, you know, hit 275, 280, you know, 20 to 25 home runs, maybe still 15 bases, you know, around 800 OPS. I think he has the chance to be an all-star type player. Um, now this was also one of my bold predictions last year and didn't quite turn out, but uh, I do think during a contract season, trying to prove that he should be the, the shortstop of the future in Atlanta, I think he's going to thrive under that pressure. I think he's going to have a big year. I like it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of bold prediction. So that's always yeah, that's my, bold. my I favorite like that question one. to ask anyone. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Jake, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. That was all the questions that we had for you. You guys can find Jake on Twitter at shortstopball. Make sure you guys check out his podcast. You can find him at locked on underscore braves. And then you can head on over to tomahawktake.com for all original content, analysis, stats, and much more on the Atlanta Braves. Thanks so much, Jake. Best of luck for the Braves this year. All right. Thanks for having me. Big thanks once again to Jake Mastriani for joining us and covering the Braves. Uh, you can give him a follow once again on Twitter at shortstopball and check out the Tomahawk take on fansided, fansided partner uh, as well because obviously we are fansided. All right, moving on to the next team in our 4-in-1 coverage for the NL East. Arguably the offseason champions, the winners of the offseason, obviously pre-lockout and post-lockout. But that being said, the offseason champion rarely continues it into the season, but we'll have to see if this team is the exception. That is the New York Mets. Obviously, the Mets uh, added a familiar face with Max Scherzer in a crazy contract, but they did not stop there. They added multiple pieces to the lineup. Uh, they even traded for Chris Bassett as well, and that rotation's looking very good. So it'll be interesting to see if the Mets are going to continue to be the Mets or if uh, they will break their own sort of curse. Mike Silva of Fansided and the Talking Mets podcast joins us. Uh, he has a great insight to how the Mets are and how the Mets were and just how impactful some of these offseason moves will be. So here he is. We're now joined by Mike Silva, host of the Talking Mets podcast, part of the Fansided podcasting network. You guys can find him on Twitter at Mike Silva media mike how you doing man thanks so much for joining us great going into the belly of the beast the most successful national league east team in the last 10 years and you guys invite me into the dungeon here so thanks a lot appreciate it and uh looking forward to it yeah good good word choice with uh dungeon because the nats are going to be in the dungeon for the next five <laughs> I say basement dungeon you know. <laughs> right <laughs> well, like I told you before you, we got on like the last what, 10 12 years and the nats in the last couple have been tough but a championship yearly playoff success and uh you know everybody has the downturn but um i guess you know i guess the old question is would you trade a couple of last place finishes for what the nats had which includes the championship there's a lot of teams that might so that's always an interesting debate i'd sell anything for a world series so yes. be careful and what you wish we for complaining after 86 was 40 years later so look at that well, diving on into the Mets, um, last year was the first season in the Steve Cohen era. The expectations were pretty high. The Mets spent 103 days in first place, but finished sub 500. That was the most days in first place to end the season below 500. And they were pretty aggressive this offseason. The biggest move of the bunch, obviously, was signing Max Scherzer to that massive contract. On paper, the Mets had by far and away the best one-two punch in the league. The biggest question for them is, though, how much can they get from the Grom and Scherzer? And my question for you is, what are your expectations for them at the top of the rotation? And can they both stay healthy this year? That's a great question. I mean, look, it's the whole season's based on these two guys. They built the foundation of DeGrom and Scherzer. And I mean, I was actually against the Scherzer move in the sense where I said, OK, if you're going to give a guy 43 million, maybe you could get two pitchers. And they wound up getting Bassett. So, you know, they wound up getting a second pitcher anyway. But I was looking at maybe Robbie Ray, Kevin Gosman. I was concerned. I mean, at the end, it's it doesn't matter the money 
unless it affects player movement because the tickets are going to be high. The cost of going to ball games going to be high. People, you know, fans, I think sometimes, and even writers get so caught up in, you know, what's the payroll. It only impacts player movement, but uh, you know, after, and, and you all know, all three of you know how the Scherzer impact in Washington, just not being there. I haven't been able to get down to spring training, but listening to those who are around him, his competitive nature, his candidness, his, uh, his work ethic. I mean, it's almost this infectious type of personality that I think he and DeGrom almost might feed off of each other. Uh, DeGrom finally in that rotation has someone that's an equal, not that he needed that, but I think that there's always that as an athlete, that, in, that, that, that need to be pushed. And um, I, I always tell the story when I kind of knew Max Scherzer was really bad. You know, I don't want to curse, but bad, you know what? And it's actually at the end of a season that, wasn't good for the Nats, which was the end of 2015. They had a mini collapse. The Mets pushed past them, got really hot the last eight weeks. And if you remember, I'm sure you do, he nearly pitched a perfect game at City Field the last weekend of the season. He struck out 17, pitched a no-hitter, and he was angry that night. I remember him like just walking off the field angry after he had this great performance. And it was almost like he was showing his teammates that, you know, we shouldn't be happy with this. This is what should have been happening. And then, of course, you know, they went out and they uh, they improved immediately the next season. So uh, my expectation is these two guys feed off each other. We could talk about health. That's always the factor with every team. I'm at a point where like health is always an issue. Let's put that in the parking lot. Let's talk about assuming a good fortune. Uh, can you get 60 starts out of them? Uh, you know, can they both win you know 15 games? You know, maybe plus 20 on there and build the bedrock of that uh, rotation with Bassett kind of being that sleeper there because uh, the offense is you know, projects to be better. It should have been better last year. And then the bullpen is a little shaky. I don't think they're the most complete team in the NL East. I think that's the Braves. And I think the Phillies have the mashing, especially with that ballpark. Uh, but I think the Mets have a little bit of both and, and, and certainly could compete at the top of the division. Yeah. I want to start out by saying that I think Max Scherzer looks terrible in orange and blue. I'm just going to throw sure. that out there. It's, it it's, is it's, weird <laughs> after all those years seeing, you know, and, and I think, and, and not to interrupt you, but I think, if it was, she was on the other foot and was DeGrom going to Washington, yeah, it's it hard certainly to take. would bother me. You're right. Yeah. It would bother me. It's even hard with to the take. championship. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my dog's name is Max. If you need to know how oh, much I love Max Scherzer. What kind of so, dog? What kind of dog? He's a no, beagle and he has two different color eyes. That's why his name they, is Max. So <laughs> it's, he really have two different. He really awesome. does. He really that does. That is great. You can't make that one up. What, Nats fan, beagle, two separate eyes. You cannot make that up. I love it. I know it's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, it pains me immensely that Max is playing for, for the Mets now, but um, let's talk a little bit more about that rotation. Um, obviously DeGrom Scherzer is as Ryan pointed out, just the best one, two punch in baseball right now. Um, what about below that though? I, I, I look at that rotation. I mean, Taiwan Walker had a rough you know, second half last year. I don't know what exactly you expect to see from him. And what if one of those big guys goes down, what kind of starting pitching depth is there and have they done enough really to make that rotation more than just those two guys? Yeah, that's a great point. And depth was, I mean, they, they got a little lucky last year with the double headers that they didn't need to cover as many innings because they had the injuries. Bassett was interesting because at the beginning of the off season, when I was looking at trade possibilities, I kept saying, if you're not going to get Gosman and they tried, they almost signed Gosman too with Max Scherz. That's a little underreported segment that they really wanted both. That was the the you know the ultimate where they were going after both. Uh, Bassett is a top twenty you know statistically last year top twenty five pitcher, free agent. But because of his age, he's in his early thirties. I thought he would cost less prospect capital, 
And you can see what Oakland got from Atlanta for Matt Olson, how expensive that whole rebuild in Oakland is going to be predicated on what they could get for whoever is a free agent, you know, Montez, mm-hmm. Manaya, who are good pitchers. But you could argue that Bassett's better than them. And he was in, in the balance, even if you don't believe that, the balance between prospect capital and um and 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 performance was there. As far as the back end, Carlos Carrasco to me is very iffy. You know, he hasn't had a really good year in four years, different health issues. Um, Taiwan Walker to me is a six innings, three runs guy. He's a guy that could be really good or or really bad at times. He was an all-star. And I think but you never know what you're gonna get. Middle. <laughs> yeah, you have a couple of young stars in Tyler McGill and David Peterson. McGill has a little bit more upside, I think. Peterson is is profiled as kind of a a back-end guy, but he, he's had a decent spring and he's shown some moxie in his short, small sample size since he's been up since the pandemic season. And then after that, it's a lot of question marks. Zapuki, uh, Jose Buto, you know, who can step up uh, from the minor leagues, from AAA? There's, they have some veterans that they've signed. Um, but you need to go 10, 11, 12 deep. And I think that's where the soft underbelly of this team is, where if they really have a rash, of pitching injuries, you wonder how they're going to fill those innings. You're not going to have the seven inning doubleheaders again. Um, not to say that Scherzer or DeGrom going on the 15 day DL, which could happen just for rest and rehabilitation, is the end of their season, but they really need that top three to stay healthy, reasonably healthy without some, you know, pushing back starts here and there. And look, Scherzer's had issues with his neck over the years. You guys mm-hmm. know that, you know, some shoulder tweaks, DeGrom with the elbow. Uh, I think the thing that you can hang your hat on is that they all seem like they're very competitive. They really all, this includes Bassett. They understand their body. Um, and and they, I think they understand the golden opportunity they had to do something special, whether that happens or not is, is a whole different story. And um, when you get to four and five with Carrasco and, 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 and Walker and with Peterson and McGill, you would think with some reasonable health that you could navigate that. And then let's see who steps up. I think because of the shortened season and no minor leagues in 2020, I think every team has gems in their system that they just don't know about yet. Because let's face it, you lost a year of minor league development. I think nobody really talks about that. A lot of these guys were at the alternate site. Nobody saw them. So even for a team like the Nationals, who is prospect focused, I'm sure you're going to find out a certain individuals that you weren't even thinking about because there was no minor league system for a year. So I'm hoping that you'll see some guys step up and, and Jose Buto is a name that I keep hearing that, you know, a lot of people feel could, could provide some value and potentially be a, a little bit of a sleeper arm. Yeah. I mean, you can never have too much pitching depth. And when you're four or five is someone like Tywin Walker, it's a pretty good spot to be in. Yeah. Continuing on with the, excuse me, pitching staff, looking at the bullpen, the Mets only have two lefties in their bullpen. Both of them are non-roster invites. I don't think either of them is going to make the roster. I could be wrong with that, but the Mets are kind of in the need for a reliable lefty reliever. You know, you're in the division that's kind of full of power lefty hitters. Sure. So though Bryce Harper, Matt Olson, to name a few, are you surprised that the Mets didn't go out and address that? And do you think that's going to become a large story of the season with not having that lefty reliever? Yes and no. I think definitely the bullpen is the biggest concern. If you told me out of the three aspects, starting pitching, offense, and bullpen, even though the offense was living in a neighborhood of putrid last year with hanging out with teams like Pittsburgh, huge underperformance. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But bullpen is a bit of that soft underbelly. Um, I like Diaz, but obviously he's a combustible closer. Seth Lugo has been dominant in the past, been some health issues. Trevor May, home run prone. Uh, Miguel Castro and Adovino, good arms, a lot of walks. 
And then you look at the left, as you mentioned, uh, Claudio and Shreve. I think Shreve makes the roster. I've always liked Jason Shreve. He was on the roster a couple of years ago. He had a good year at Pittsburgh. And with the 28-man roster, I think the debate is, do you take a nice defensive-minded backup outfielder like Janikowski, local guy, went to Stony Brook University, played in the College World Series, or do you let the two lefties battle it out through the end? I guess the end of April, early May is when they'll, they'll go back to the 26-man roster. Um, you could, I could see both those guys, depending on how their contracts are structured and whether they could get them through waivers. I thought they should have went after an Andrew Chafin or a Jake Diekman or something like that. Uh, remember one thing, as you get to the luxury tax, the Mets are right up against it with that 290 with the AAV. If you go to Spot Trick, it'll show you there. And I know that the CBA is still working itself out, but if you go above the super penalty, I think you lose, or there's been reports that you lose 10 slots down on the draft. And the Mets have two first-round picks this year, and I think six picks early on that are really important to replenish the system. There may be a reluctance until they find out what's going on with, you know, are you going to lose it this year? Are you going to lose it next year? Uh, I don't think they care about dropping the spots down. I think it's, and this is all speculation because nobody really knows what the CBA looks like. It's, it's when it's going to happen. It would be a criminal, I think, when you try to balance the future with the present to, to lose that, that slot and really fall out of that. I think it's 11 and 14 they have. Uh, in a, in a, in a situation where, yes, they're spending money, yes, they're a contender. But as you know, as Nats fans who are now going through a rebuild, rebuilding is right on the corner. Success is fast and fleeting. And ultimately, you're going to be like Steve Cohen wants to be, like the Dodgers, which is a lofty goal. You got to spend, but you have to build up a farm system. And that's where the soft, we went back to the earlier question from Amanda. That's where the soft underbelly is, where you're relying on if, if, if. And you can't spend your way into depth. You can't have eight veteran starters making all 10, 12, 15 million a year. It's not realistic, even for the richest owner, maybe all sports. So I think that's where they kind of said, okay, let's go cheap. Let's go value driven. Let's see what we have. And that's something that we could address during the season. And um, I, I, I think they're going to have to address the bullpen unless, but there's, there's a couple of young arms, Colin Holderman, uh, a couple of interesting young arms, uh, Jake Reed, who's probably not going to make the team, NC Diaz. So they have some arms that are interesting. Again, I think just because we're ramping up, the last year was the first full minor league season since COVID. Uh, I think there's probably still a lot of names that we quite simply don't know. And I, I think we cannot, I go back to what I said earlier. I don't think we could understate the lost year development for some of these guys, because even if you were at the ultimate site, it's not the same. I think a lot of guys were kind of like lost in, in, in the desert during that pandemic season from a minor league point of view. That's a really interesting point. Um, you know, it would be quite fortuitous for the Mets if um, some of those younger guys wound up being, you know, at the being able to come up to the major league level this year, because I, I do agree with you that their bullpen is, if you look at it on paper, definitely the weakest of the three. Yeah. And that's, that's where the games are going to be decided. Even with Scherzer and DeGrom early on, they're not going to go. Maybe Scherzer will go a little longer. DeGrom is probably a five, six. He does that guy. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You, you need those nine outs. It's really at the, the point is nine outs. So if you got those two guys, getting you uh, 18 and let's say Diaz, you get 21. You still need those six outs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're playing the Nats who are rebuilding team who still have some really good. I think the division is interesting because even the bottom teams like Miami and Washington will be pains in the rear end because you've got some decent offensive players in, in Washington. Their pitching is the problem. Miami's got good pitching. So if you're playing close games with those teams, you're still expected to get six outs and you're still navigating guys like Soto. And I think Lane Thomas is an interesting name uh, out of Washington. Uh, Bell, you know, there's, there's guys that could hurt you. And all it takes is a walk and a blast, and you're down to a team that you're supposed to beat. 
Um, so bullpen is where this is going to be won. And that is where they're obviously could be really good because they had some guys perform well. Uh, and most of those guys perform well last year, but was that a product of their defensive metrics and placement? Uh, a little bit of luck, you know, because if you look, the walk rates are still high out of that bullpen, even with the higher strikeouts. And, and my biggest thing is in every bullpen in the league is like this. I still don't understand why there's not more of a focus on getting pitchers that are more, even if they're more contact prone, I think walks out of the bullpen are the death knell for a lot of these teams. And I know that there's about missing bats, but when you're walking four five, six per nine and look at these bullpens around the league, Mets have guys like that too. I, I feel like the strikeouts are negated to a large degree. And I know analytics d- disputes that, but uh, you know, give me a guy that goes out there and gets some, some outs and throw strikes. And you'd be surprised about how you can navigate those late innings. The Mets it remains to be seen how well they can do that. Uh, let's talk about the uh, third aspect of the team here, the lineup. I mean, you mentioned earlier about their kind of woeful offensive underperformance last year. Um, Lindor was a big part of that. Um, yep. You know, he signed a huge contract. Um, do you, yep. see, what are you seeing from him in spring training right now? Um, do you think he's going to live up to that contract? And also uh, maybe if you could touch on your thoughts on Starling Marte, um, you know, being added and how that's going to affect, you know, him being at the top of the lineup, how that's going to affect the rest of that. Group. Well, man, here's, hey, Mandy, here's what I would say with, with Lindor. He's never going to live up to that contract because he's not A-Rod. He's not that really that player. It was a total overpay. And I had I, I didn't mind the trade. I thought the trade was reasonable because I wasn't – Rosario lacked a lot of instincts. Jimenez was an interesting but a component player. And, and Isaiah Green, who was there, the prospect was raw. So I was like, okay, you basically stole, for lack of a better word, to a certain degree, Lindor for a year. But the lesson I've been – and I've said this many times on, on Talking Mets – you know, you guys at least should go on one date before you get married. The Mets didn't even go on a date. They went on their match.com, and I'm probably dating myself profile, and said, we're going to get married. Good enough. And then all of a sudden, you're hanging out, and you're living together, and you're like, I don't like this. I don't like that. And then Lindor is like, wow, this is a little bit different than Cleveland. The smile and the, and the goofiness and the energy is not enough. Hopefully, uh, similar to Carlos Beltran, who came here and took the money and had a really rough first year and, and actually had a rough first two weeks of 06 before – a key moment uh, where, you know, he hit a home run. The fans asked him for a curtain call and Julio Franco pushed him out of the dugout and kind of encouraged him to brace the fans. And his career with the Mets turned around to a certain degree after that. Lindor is in a similar situation where maybe for him, even if he's the slightly above league average shortstop, I mean, he points more to Jose Reyes to me than an A-Rod at shortstop. I mean, he's he's never going to be, I believe, a $35 million a year player. But that was what the market dictated. Um, Maybe a good team around him, and with him being who he really is, which may not be the player he was in 17 or 18, but more like the guy he was, uh, like I said, Jose Reyes with power, really good elite defense. It won't bother the fans as much because now you have Scherzer and some of these other players, like you mentioned, Marte coming in. That takes a little bit of that shiny new object away from him. I think he, him getting off to a hot start is important for him personally, because I don't think I think there's always going to be something that whether it's a show like this or the mainstream media or fans on talk radio are going to want to harp on. Let's face it. When you do this show, prosperity doesn't make for good radio. Doesn't. I mean, love fest <laughs> don't necessarily get the best listeners, even though that's what ultimately we want, which is a competitive team. So my hope is that Martin, what he brings in terms of professionalism and defense and Canna, who's an interesting player and Waterway Escobar, who seems like a pro, all these pros they brought around him, these players that aren't sexy, but, all fill a role, lead to a more successful team. And then maybe if he's not exactly the $35 million a year player that I know he probably isn't, he's 
He's getting, you know, the market dictated his, his salary, not necessarily the performance. Well, he was right place, right time. The owner wanted to make a statement and they're on a good team. And he's an elite defensive shortstop. You can't take that away from him. And he still could hit. He's just not MVP level hitting. And if he does anything above that, it's gravy. So my hope is to answer your question that these players like Marty that are around him are going to shield him a little bit more than maybe he was shielded last year because he was the new guy and he was the star. And I think the ex- it's always about managing expectations. Sometimes we want players to be somebody that, quite honestly, if you really are really honest with yourself, they're not. And that's, not, that's okay. You can't equate the money to the player. The money sometimes is totally different. It's a market condition. It's not a performance condition, if that makes sense. Yeah, and while we're sticking to the offense here, the Mets are going to be getting Robinson Cano back, so that'll be a very interesting storyline. But the Mets last year had a lot of offensive underperformances. They brought in a new hitting coach with Eric Chavez. Do you think he can help right the ship with a lot of those guys that underperformed? That's a great question, and I think it, I've always felt the pitching coach is more important than the hitting coach because they work on mechanics, and there's always that mental aspect to pitching because there's so much thought to go into what happens. Yes, that's the case with offense and, and a hitter, but sometimes I feel hitters could have their natural athletic ability take over their muscle memory, take over and the hitting coach. I mean, I've talked to former players, uh, hall of famers off the cuff. And I've said, did you even know who your hitting coach was it's like, yeah, but I didn't really talk to him, but now those are great players uh, with the Mets. I think can Chavez kind of provide them because the feedback that came out of last year was, with Zach Scott and, and Louis Rojas with the cue from the front office, with this desire to really ramp the Mets ability to use information, which has been a, a, a deficiency for them for a long time. They might've made it too complicated for the players where planning preparation thought overtook their natural ability. Perfect examples. I always remember it's a late inning, uh, July game last year, Luis Guillerme was pinch hitting, and they made, and I think the Reds or the Cardinals, I don't remember who which team it was, made a pitching change. Might have been the Blue Jays, I can't remember. It was midseason, late summer. And I see him on the on deck circle, the camera pants him, and he's looking at his iPad with the hitting coach, Hugh Quattlebaum. I'm like, to me, I'm a novice. I was a Sandlot player. But I knew preparing for the at-bat, getting zoned in, looking at the pitcher warming up, to me, really was important. Uh, and I've asked former players, they agreed with me when I've said that now, these are from a different generation Then looking at what the tendencies were. You could, that's your pregame. And I think that overemphasis on information kind of dragged them up to the plate. And I think guys kind of got in their own minds. And, and I think we all know that confidence is sometimes the biggest part of being a good or great hitter or having a good year and a bad year. Cause they're all good. These guys all have a resume. Um, so can Chavez eliminate that part and help them with, uh, being a former player with the process, with the grind, understanding, you know, what's good and what works for certain guys. Uh, we'll see. I think they get a little overrated, the hitting coach, but maybe last year they weren't because you fired a professional hitting coach that had a really good stint with the Mets in 2019 when they had a good offense, especially in the second half. And you brought in uh, a career minor leaguer who was uh, working with my, you know, player development and thrust them into the role. And it was almost like uh, a lecture. It almost seemed like that's the way it's been described. So, just by the, you know, laying off these guys and letting them kind of let their natural talent play out that if Chavez could do that, that might be worth its weight in gold. Cause there's good professional hitters on this roster. Even if you don't believe hundred percent in JD Davis and Dom Smith and what they produced in small sample size guys like McNeil and um, uh, you know, Pete Alonso didn't really have a down year, but even McCann who 
has been a bit of a renaissance since his days in Detroit. They can't be as bad as that because there's enough of a sample size to indicate that they're not. Um, and then you have professionals like Escobar and Marte and Canna coming in that you would hope uh, weren't here last year and are coming from successful organizations that could you know, basically continue that. Uh, obviously, the health thing, like we said, which is always hanging over, is there. Uh, but I think ultimately they'll score enough runs. I don't think they're a five and a half run per game team for sure. I don't see that. They could be, um, but a lot has got to go right. And until I see that go right consistently, I'm going to err on the side of caution. But even with moderate offensive production and with the pitching, let's say, you know, the starters being who we think they are, and even with a bullpen that could be shaky, you know, to me, it still s- smells like a team that should be in the 90 win range. And then as performance improvements with roster and performances get better throughout the summer, you know, you build from there and, and, and you, know, you saw it even with the Nats in 2019, you don't have to be perfect at the beginning. You have to be perfect at the right time, which is to get into the tournament. And if this team get in the tournament, you got a pretty exciting one, two punch that is going to be hard to beat in a short series. Yeah. The talent is definitely, it's pretty much always been there with the Mets, at least in, in recent history. It's just a matter of how the Mets are going to be the Mets and get in their own way. One way or another, we have a, you know, fun recurring segment on our show called sure. Keeping Up with the Mets that, you know, sure. there's always some sort of uh, event going on within that organization that's fun to keep. It's been of. quieted down quite a bit with a professional like Buck Scholar, and I've compared him a little bit to how Pat Riley came in with the Knicks 30 years ago and cleaned things up. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, but, you know, Buck doesn't have the titles that Riley had with the Lakers, but the professionalism, the attention to detail, the way he handles the media. A lot of the Mets being Mets is kind of a narrative that makes for good copy here in New York and nationally. And they played into it by doing things that were easy. Um, A professional manager who has respect and a resume and winning, which they've done in in spurts cleans a lot of that up. As you know, I mean, the Nats were a laughing stock and then they start winning and nobody remembers the 07, 06, 08, you know, that kind of whole thing. So um, sometimes those narratives spiral out of control because again, it makes for good content and I don't blame people. It's part of the game we play here. Oh yeah. It was definitely fun to watch again as, as Nats fans, but probably not as fun. Uh, if you are a Mets fan to see some of the stuff that, that could get down. tiresome. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. All right, Mike, before we uh, get you out of here, I wanted to do some rapid fire with you. Sure. If you're looking at the Mets season, give us your projected win total and what place they finish in, in the NL East. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to say 90 in second place because I'm going to assume some injuries, some health issues, some underperformance. I still got to give it to the Braves. They've done it for, what, four or five years in a row, and I feel they're more complete. But uh, they get into the wild. I, I, 90 wins, and they'll be a wild card team, and they'll be in the tournament. Like that. Uh, who is your MVP and Cy Young picks for the Mets? MVP. Um uh... You know what? I'm going to go with, and this is interesting because you have an MVP. I think Scherzer will be the MVP because I think of what he brings, the attitude he brings, I think is going to be infectious. But I'm going to go with the Cy Young for DeGrom because him having the gumption to opt out, knowing that he came off of some injuries and missed half the season, and just looking at an off DeGrom, how good he is, I'd like to see what we saw last year in a half a season for a full season. So it's kind of redundant because they're both pitchers, but I think right away, and I think uh, I was even reading some articles from the Washington Post from 2015 about how Scherzer did this to the Nats after they came off that disappointing 14 loss. 
I think he'll have a similar impact to clubhouse. So I'll use that as an MVP and then DeGrom is the Cy Young Award. Uh, you know, sorry about, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. You know, oh, I dig kind it. Kind of rubbing salt in the wound, but I, 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 <laughs> I admire in a short span of time what this guy can bring to the table from an intangible standpoint. Yeah. Max was uh, obviously, you know, Bryce was there for a while and Rendon had a couple of great years and obviously Soto, but Max is probably the MVP for the Nats for, for quite some time because of. And Soto is so much durable. better than Bryce Harper. I don't think there's even a question. <laughs> Let me tell you, I was always said that Bryce Harper is one of the more overrated guys. Now he made me look bad last year, but in a big spot, I'll pitch this, this Harper way over Soto. 10 times out of 10, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you're looking at the Mets, and I know you, you mentioned a couple of uh, guys to keep your eye on, but if you had to pick one dark horse guy, someone no one's really talking about, who's your dark horse player to watch for the Mets? Brandon Nimmo, because I think you if you start, now there's been an injury history, but when you see when he plays every day, go back to 2018 when he had a relatively healthy year, and then the small sample size when he was healthy in 19 and the end, end of the year in September, and then last year, he is a top 10 run creator, run producer. He walks, he, he, he hits for power. Um, that's a guy that I think everybody looks at as, I've heard people say he's a backup outfielder. He's not a backup outfielder. Which you, why you think he's a backup outfielder is because he can't stay on the field and you only see a guy that hits you know, maybe 240, 250, but he's constantly on base and producing runs. If you look at his run creation stats over at Fangraphs, they're always at the top. And um, I think that's a guy that, maybe gets help by in the old days. I'll talk about when I watched baseball start in the eighties, you probably, eh, he's okay. But when you have advanced analytics and you know, the real value of how teams score runs, I mean, he just floats to the top. So when you, when you watch the Mets in a healthy memo, I think the Mets are, are a much better offensive team and a better team with him on the field. Yeah, I, I can't like the pick just because he sprints the first after he walks. I know, he probably annoys you. <laughs> he's got that Pete Rose, but he's a really, and I and I have not met him, uh, but the guys who I know that cover him, he's a really great guy, really genuine guy, great guy. And uh, I could see the point to the sky and the sprint annoy opposition. I mean, that, oh, the, the point of the sky is great. I just, I just <laughs> don't like the sprint. That, right? <laughs> But we know all about our player doing something that annoys other fan bases when. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that happens. Look, and I think that's part of the fun of doing this, like getting like the NBA does such a good job of, and maybe it's even lost to a certain degree with um, the modern game, but with the, I mean, think about the rivalries. I don't know if you guys are basketball fans, but think about the rivalries, the character, you know, I'm a Knicks fan. So I think back to Reggie Miller and Jordan and, you know, when they played the Bulls or the Heat, you know, just all those little subplots. And baseball has a hard time with that. But if you could get that and you get into a series and someone like Nimmo annoys you and drives you crazy, um, think about the kind of fun you have when you have these kind of conversations. So, um, but I could see your point on that. And I understand that. But I, I really think that like, look more at that guy because he gets really overlooked, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, just general counting basic statistics it doesn't doesn't stand out but i can tell you the Mets are a lot better with him on a field and heading into our last question for you my personal favorite to ask everyone if you had to give one bold prediction for the mets 2022 season what would it be edwin diaz is going to be more dominant than you give him credit for love it that I'll give I'll I'll die on that hill because that is such nasty stuff. If he could just get his mechanics that are overly complicated down pat. I mean, if you ever watched the most dominant, it was a, a save against the Cubs last year in June. 
the guy you can't touch. I talked to a scout that's covered him extensively when he was out in the Seattle area. He says, when he's on, you can't touch him. The problem is, is that you got two problems. He's arm slot, which is kind of funky and complicated, gets out of whack. And you even saw it last year when the Nats, when he blew a save in the ninth inning, I think on Labor Day, you just stick that bat out. And it just seems like it always finds a dinker or a dunker. It's almost like the ball finds the bat. And even though you can't see it or hit it, it finds a little hole. But when he's on, he's nasty and he's a, he's a free agent. And um, I think he's going to be a lot better and a lot more dominant than people give him credit for. That's a bold prediction. And certainly within the Mets fan base, I'm going to get criticized for that because no fan. Does any fan base like their closer? I mean, I don't think anyone Mad- likes their bullpen. Story <laughs> got run out of town. I mean, Daniel Hudson had a success, of course, you know, but uh, does anyone like their closer really? So other than Rivera uh, and the Yankees, so. I don't know. Well, I'm completely traumatized by the 2012 NLDS. So Storin is dead. I'm just throwing that out there. That is a heartbreaker. That That is a heartbreaker. I'm sure Drew Storin is not going to, you're not going to name any other dog after Drew Storin. I can just. No, no. Drew Drew will not get a dog name. I like her. She's got a beagle. She names it Max Serza. And the dog's got a couple eyes and she doesn't like Drew Storin. There you go. So. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just laughing about freaking Drew Storin. <laughs> uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on Anytime. and joining us today. Absolute pleasure talking to you. You guys can find him on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. And make sure you guys check out his podcast, Talking Mets. You can head on over to TalkingMetsPodcast.com to keep up with all of their latest episodes in all things Mets. Mike, thank you so much, man. And best of luck in 2022. Anytime. Keep in touch. I love it. Appreciate it. Stay in touch. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Big thanks once again to Mike Silva for joining us. You can follow him once again on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. And uh, check out the Talking Mets podcast as part of the Fan Sided Network. Once again, we love the Fan Sided Network. All right. Moving on to the last team we have to cover. The one that has been so mediocre over the past decade that I'm not kidding. They're always between 79 and 82 wins. That's how mediocre this team has been ever since their uh, late 2000s run to the World Series and obviously winning one. That is the Philadelphia Phillies, and we are joined by a friend of the show, Destiny Lugardo. Uh, the Phillies are the Phillies, right? But they went all in and kind of a, a interesting approach, uh, adding Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber to their team. We'll see if it's enough, and we'll see how the Phillies are doing. A little preface uh, on my part. I thought my microphone was plugged in for this interview. It was not. My audio was instead going through my beats, so my audio sounds terrible. Sorry about that, but maybe adds a little bit of uh, authenticity to the interview. So once again, I apologize for my interview, but Destiny was great. It's worth the listen, and here she is. And we are now joined by Destiny Lagardo editorial director at Phillies Nation. You guys can find her on Twitter at Destiny Legardo and head on over to philliesnation.com to keep up with all things Phillies. Destiny, thank you so much for joining us for a third time, by the way. Congratulations to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess I'm somewhat of a super guest here. I don't know what the record is, though. Probably not three. Oh, you have a way. Yeah, you have a ways to go. That's not <laughs> yeah. like, anything against you. We just we have Matt Weirich of uh, NBC Sports Washington. We, oh, yeah. We have him yeah. on like once a month. So he, he currently has the record. But you can get there. I believe in you. But record for non-Nats reporters. So like still this pretty good. True. That's that's true. a yeah, good title. I, I could take that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, looking at the Phillies 2021 season, it was historic for them. You know, they won 82 games, eclipsed the 500 mark. Uh, Bryce won second MVP, but they kind of fell apart late in the season, avoiding what was at the time a pretty winnable division. And the Phillies were aggressive this offseason. They went over the luxury tax for the first time ever. Their top two additions, obviously, Kyle Schwarber and Nicholas Castellanos. That lineup's rather good. That one through six is deep, and it should probably cause some issues for a lot of teams. Um, what is your expectation for the lineup this year? And is that lineup going to be good enough to overcome the defensive issues that happen when you have Kyle Schwarber and Nicholas Castellanos playing the field? Yeah, I think the lineup is going to be the strength of this team. And pretty much came in last year, maybe thinking that the starting rotation is going to be the strength, but I definitely think it's going to be the lineup. And, you know, Bryce Harper had an incredible year last year, but at least for the last two months of the season, he was a one-man show with Reese Hoskins going down and it was a huge problem. So Dave Dombrowski assessed that situation and said, look, we need to get guys around Bryce Harper to both utilize his prime and then utilize the guys that are around him and then utilize you know, the guys that you signed. So yeah, the, the lineup's going to provide a lot of power. Uh, obviously you guys had a front row to seeing Kyle Schwarber hit lead off and hit all those home runs in a month. Um, they really don't have another leadoff hitter. So it's probably going to be Schwarber that'll play that important role. One of the problems that they did have on offense last year is that they had Odubel Herrera in that spot and his on-base percentage was 280. And it's a big reason why Harper had such a low RBI total and in general, why the offense was broken. So the offense, especially one through six, and I feel a lot better about the the guys at the bottom of the order, like Bryson Stodd, who is definitely going to be a contributor this year, Matt Veerling, who's going to play center field for them. So um, even beyond one through six, I feel really good about the whole lineup. And, you know, as far as the defense go, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, when you're watching spring training games, you also get those away broadcasts just because the, the home broadcast doesn't show every um, game. And the first thing they kind of talk about is, well, the offense is going to be incredible, but what about that defense? And, you know, my first initial reaction to them signing Castellanos is like, wait, there's way too many DHs on this team. Um, you know, why didn't they go a different route? And it was kind of a, I would say it's, I wouldn't say it's like a dumb thought, but it's kind of silly because one, like, I really think the offense was a huge problem last year. So I'm glad that they fixed it. But two, like the defense isn't much worse than it was last year. Like, don't get me wrong. It was really bad. But um, Harper is not very good at the corner spot. Um, you know, in 2019, his first year, he was a nominee for a gold glove. And I don't think that's going to happen again. Um, so I'm not expecting him to be a net positive there. And then they had Andrew McCutcheon last year in left field and, um, I think Rob Orr, who's now a writer at Baseball Prospectus, he posted earlier today. Um, last year, there was like a, a report that Andrew McCutcheon might have some like eye issues or at least Joe Girardi thought he did just because he was missing so many balls. So they didn't have a good left fielder last year and they still um, they have Didi Gregorius at shortstop and he was one of the worst defenders there. So, um, yeah, the defense is going to be bad, but it's probably going to be the same amount of bad as it was last year. There will be some improvements with. Bryson Stott, um, possibly Manning, either shortstop or third base. Gene Segura is still a great defender. JT is one of the best uh, defensive catchers in baseball. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the defense is going to be a problem, but the offense is going to be really good. And I think they could outslug those defensive deficiencies. Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> it's pretty bad when your manager is like, Hey, are, are your eyes? Okay. <laughs> that I can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, if you're like, you know, if you have supposed eye issues or whatever, and you're still not the worst defender, then that kind of says something about the team, but they did make moves. Like you said, offensively that might compensate for some defensive deficiencies uh you mentioned him I want to talk about David Dombrowski his style is very well known and with the Phillies uh you know kind of decade of mediocrity so to speak uh it it wasn't surprising that they brought in someone like David Dombrowski and his history of just spending and he has a history of winning too you know with the Tigers and the Red Sox but is there a sort of concern with you know, his style, because we just mentioned it, he's going all in on offense. Not sure how much that leaves for pitching down the line. If you, you know, still view that as a necessity, is there any concern about, you know, the short-term future or you just focus on, you know, this season trying to win? That's a really interesting point because when Dave Dombrowski was hired, the prevailing fear was that he was going to blow up whatever farm system they have. Um, And that hasn't really happened. And I think, you know, I was reading an interview from Dabrowski when either he was with the Red Sox or the Tigers, and he was asked about that. And he pretty much said, well, I do what the owner tells me to do. And I think the ownership mandate is to somewhat um, build a farm system and to also spend the money that we have to get the best players. Um, So I think especially with Phillies fans and a decade of mediocrity is a really great way to put it. Um, They just want to go to the playoffs and they want to see a team that they're proud of to, to, to cheer on on an everyday basis. So um, there could be concerns five years down the line when a lot of these guys are in their um, early to mid thirties and the production kind of goes down, but I really don't think that's a concern right now. Um, fans kind of seeing this year as a, a go all in year and then maybe next year and who knows if it goes well maybe a couple years after that and then some guys start coming up through the farm system so yeah I mean and at the same time when ownership makes that commitment to go over the luxury tax I think people are going to rightfully expect more like instead of trying to dip down next year just go over again and spend more and add more to this team if they feel as though you know, they're, they're close to a world series or they, they went far this year. So, you know, as far as Dombrowski spending a lot of money, I mean, he wouldn't spend it if ownership was like, yeah, you can't spend that money. So um, yeah, I would, I would say like from a Phillies fan perspective, like they don't care what 2025 looks like on the books. And that's fine because it is not their money. Nats fans, I mean, they should do the same. I know Ryan and I are spend that money. It's not our money. We don't care. Go over the tax. <laughs> yeah, I totally um, agree. So you talk about the money that they spent this off season. Last season, it was no secret the Phillies bullpen wasn't very good. They tied an MLB record with 34 blown saves. Are you surprised that they didn't put a bigger focus on the bullpen this off season, or are they taking more of an approach of like they can't be that bad again this season? Yeah, I mean. They did go out and sign three guys. I think maybe the issue with the bullpen, when Corey Knable was signed, the first expectation was, okay, he's going to be a very good setup guy. But then, you know, hours after they signed him, Dave Dabrowski said, you know, we were looking for a closer and we think we got our closer. Um, so we're not in the in the market for it anymore. Um, and then they 
their first move after the lockout was Yuri Samilia and Phillies fans have seen enough of him the last few years when he was with the Mets to say like, I don't, you know, I don't understand. And then Brad, Brad hand, um, you guys, you guys are familiar with that name too. Um, there, there was just a lot of like bullpen moves that didn't make sense. And considering that the bullpen market was very deep this year, um, maybe their plan was to not go two years for a guy like, you know, to pair or Chafin or Colin McHugh. It just felt like there were some deals that were more desirable than the ones the Philly sign. So, um, yeah, like they spent money on the bullpen, but I think there's still a lot of skepticism on like, is the bullpen going to be any better than it was last year? And I think there's, you know, there's good reasons to have those questions, especially, you know, right at the second Connor Brogdon, he had an outing earlier today and people, well, I'm one of those people who's expecting him to take a a big step forward for the Phillies and his velocity is down. Um, Jose Alvarado is dealing with a neck injury. Um, it shouldn't be that serious, but he might miss opening day. And then Sam Kurrod is expected to go in the IL. So the depth is is running really thin right now. So, um, you know, there's a there's a chance that the bullpen this year is actually really good, and all the memes kind of backfire on everyone. And then there's also a chance that the Phillies have like a, a bottom five or a bottom ten bullpen. It's just like the perspective with that unit, and then with you know pretty much the Phillies in general is that it could be they could be one of the best teams or one of the, one of the worst in in certain areas. So, yeah, I mean, there was money spent in the bullpen, but there's some, you know, question marks on the guys they did acquire. Yeah, that's, I mean, we talked about this when we were, you know, breaking down other teams, it it feels like more teams have questionable bullpens than, you know, feel good about their bullpen. So uh, I don't think the Phillies are alone and feeling like, oh, it could be really good, could be really bad. We'll, we'll just have to see once the season gets underway. I wanted to shift to one of your starting pitchers. And obviously, you know, Zach Wheeler had a great year last year. Ranger Suarez was kind of like a, a revelation and seems to be, uh, you know, a, a lock for the rotation. I wanted to ask about Aaron Nola, though. Obviously, he's going to be in the rotation. I want to know your thoughts on, like, who Aaron Nola is because it felt like he was going to be, you know, a, a superstar perennial Cy Young contender and not that he can't get there but we haven't seen you know anything quite to that level just yet I want to get your thoughts on him and kind of what the expectations are from you know the Phillies fan and Phillies community on Aaron Nola yeah that's a it's an interesting question and I'm probably an interesting person to ask that question (laughs) to because I'm probably on an island when I think um, that Aaron Nola is still capable of being an ace for the Phillies or any team that he's with beyond like 2023. Um, But last year was really concerning. Um, Usually Nola would go on this, you know, impressive hot streak over the summer and and he would just look unhittable and he never did that. He gave up a ton of two strike hits. Um, It's, it would seem like he would get through four or five clean innings and then he would just implode during the, the sixth or the fifth or, whatever his last inning was, he could never put together like a really strong, like start. Obviously he had a couple shutouts and he looked really great. Um, but you know, his floor is he's a guy that's stayed relatively healthy for the last four or five years. So you reasonably expect him to give you about like 180, maybe even 200 innings. I, that might be a stretch this year, just in general, but 
he's going to be a guy that's going to be there in the rotation. And that's just valuable enough considering how many guys get injured, but um, he, he really needs to improve if he's going to be that number two guy that they really need him to be. And Zach Wheeler right now is the ace, obviously, you know, with the season that he had last year, Zach Wheeler has better stuff. Um, he's more consistent than Aaron Nola. So he deserves that title, but that essentially means that Aaron Nola doesn't have to be an ace to be a very valuable pitcher for the Phillies. So, um, you know, and also another reason why he struggled a lot last year was, you know, every time he would come out for a zoom interview and it was a bad outing, you would ask him like, Oh, like what went wrong today? And it was like, Oh, I didn't have my sinker. Oh, I didn't have my change up um, my curveball. I just wasn't feeling it. Like he has to have consistent feel for all four of his pitches. Every time he takes the mound, he has to have consistent um, command with his fastball. And if he gets strikes early in the count um, and he could get guys to swing at the curveball or the change up later, I think he's going to have success. He also has to trust the guys that are behind him and that, that's going to be very difficult with the infield defense that the Phillies do have, but it, it does seem like he's a guy that aims for the strikeout first and then ends up getting, he gets into to big counts and um, he'll strike some guys out, but also give up those home runs because he's trying to keep the ball in the strike zone. Um, and he's, he, I don't know. I haven't checked the ground ball rates last year, but it kind of seems like he was getting away from just getting guys out Um you know, through ground balls and the fly ball rate went up. So yeah, we're, we're going to have to see a lot of changes with Aaron Nola. I do feel better about this year being better than last year, just because it was just so strange that he had a four, six ERA. Um, but so far this spring, like I'm, I'm not going to put too much stock into spring performances, but he's given up a few home runs and he's left some balls over the plate and that's concerning. But um, we just have to see like how he is for the first few weeks of the season, see who he really is. Looking at the rotation still, you mentioned Wheeler. What is Zach's status right now? Um, I saw he tossed, you know, live BP the other day, but is he going to be ready for opening day? And do you think there's going to be any ramifications for him with that heavy workload he had last year? Yeah, so I believe he is scheduled to make his first and only spring appearance on Saturday against the Blue Jays, and I assume he'll pitch a few innings. And then after that, there's like they have a a Wednesday game that's their last spring game at the Trop, and then they have a day off, and then um, opening day for them is April eighth. So he'll pitch that Thursday, the day before opening day, um, and then he should. If all goes well, he should be in the rotation the first time out. He'll probably be limited to around four innings. And the Phillies do have um, a preface to where they had they prefer to to bring about three long men with them. Um, so they should have a guy piggyback off of Wheeler because he won't be fully built up. But um, yeah, he he pitched over two hundred innings last year, and you know honestly, it's they didn't have much of a bull they didn't have many bullpen options. So sometimes it felt like Wheeler was getting a little bit stretched out. Sometimes Wheeler was so good that he was just going into the seventh and eighth, no problem. Um, but yeah, it's something that they have to really, you know, if, if he's tired or if something's not right, then, you know, I don't really know how to mitigate that because they also really need Zach Wheeler to be close to the guy that he was last year, but they also can't afford to have him miss a few months or even like, go on the IL for 
a year or so. And that would just be like a nightmare scenario for the Phillies because um, you talked about the offense before. None of this really matters if Zach Wheeler isn't healthy. So the hope is, is that he's he builds up slowly. Um, he won't be like, you know, Nola's pretty much ready to go the first day of the season. He won't be like that. So they have to monitor his workload um, and hope he's he's just as productive and and hope not that um, his heavy workload last year wasn't too much. It wasn't too much for him and that he could handle it this year. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. And if Joe Girardi learns when to pull a guy, uh, that's that was some interesting, you know, managerial strategy. Uh, with some of Zach Wheeler starts in particular. So uh, fun to watch as a Nats fan, but also we need to find misery elsewhere because there's plenty uh, here at home <laughs> with our Nats. Um, I want to take it back to the infield really quick and continue with my theme about asking, you know, you and just the general consensus on certain Phillies players. And, and this one, you know, one of your top prospects, high hopes, had a great 2020, not so great 2021. That's Alec Baum. Uh what are your thoughts on him? What are, you know, the Phillies expecting from him? He's still young. He can still, you know, improve. But certainly I don't think anyone was necessarily pleased with how he played last year. Yeah, he's in a really tough spot. I think over the last two years, it was obvious that he's probably not going to stick at third base. And there's really no place for him to go because they they signed Schwarber and Castellanos. And because Reese Hoskins has first base and he has that for at least the next two years. Um, So, you know, add in the fact that he can't really play third and that he's also struggling at the plate and the Phillies are in this full on win now mode. um, It's hard to see him have a spot if he doesn't rebound offensively. Um, Yeah, it's it's also like I should mention that before coming into spring, there was an expectation that there was going to be a shortstop battle between Didi Gregorius and Bryson Sott. And now it pretty much seems that they're going to give um, shortstop to Gregorius. And now there's somewhat of a battle between Bohm and Stott, two of their former first round picks for third base. And Stott is just, he's looked like the better player throughout the whole spring. His feel for the strike zone is incredible for someone his age he's just making hitting look really easy and he's a much better defender than boom so you know if they want to bring their best team to philly in a, in a couple i don't want to say a couple weeks because it's like it's nine days but um they want to bring their best team they're bringing Stein. they're they're probably not bringing bone because they don't want to use him as a bench bat they want him to get regular reps you know whether it's at triple a or not so um, there has been some reported rumors of him possibly being used in a trade, but I would assume his value is very low right now. There's not a lot of teams that want a somewhat of a first baseman slash DH who might be a third if you try really hard. Um, there's not many teams that are trying to get a player like him. Um, maybe you know injuries happen and there's a spot for him that opens up at some point in the season and he looks a lot better. Um, maybe the Phillies move on for him in a trade and um, his value goes up just because he, he does better, but it's, it's, it's tough to see him have a place in this team, especially because there's so many DH types. Um, yeah. It, it's really, it's really weird where we're at right now, just because two years ago he looked like he was really carrying the team in his rookie year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what their decision is with, with Alec Bohm. Um, I would assume if, 
Bryson Stott and he probably does make the team, you know, maybe Alec Bohm gets sent down to AAA and he works on some things again. Um, they weren't afraid to do that last year. So I don't see why they would, you know, do that, why they would not do that again this year. So, um, yeah, it's, he's in a tough plot. He's in a tough space right now. It's kind of annoying hearing other teams have young guys to play third and short when the Nats are running out Mike Calfranco. That really irritates me. Uh, yeah, maybe the Nationals, <laughs> maybe the Nationals could take him back. Get Alec Bohm. Yeah. <laughs> um, another young guy on the Phillies who I think is actually going to be kind of interesting for y'all um, is Bailey Falter. I was reading that he's been developing a third pitch. It kind of circles back to the bullpen a little bit, but what type of role could the Phillies expect from Bailey Falter this season? I think Bailey Falter is their sixth starter right now. And beyond, you know, Wheeler, Nola, Eflin, Gibson, and Suarez, they don't have a lot of depth behind them. So Bailey Falter is going to have some opportunities to, you know, tell to the the Phillies brass that he could be a starter on this team and they're definitely going to need him. I do think um, when that season starts and I I mentioned before that Wheeler might need a a piggyback partner. I think Bailey Falter might be that guy, but um, Bailey Falter is interesting because last year when he first came up, he just looked disgusting and then he got COVID and he was in the bullpen. Mostly he just didn't look the same. So um, I would hope for more consistency this year from him. Um, they're definitely going to need it because they don't have a lot of depth um, behind their top five in the starting rotation. So Falter panning out to be even an average starter would be a huge development for the Phillies. Depth is always a good thing. And, you know, it's like Ryan was saying earlier, it's annoying to see that other teams have these young guys competing for spots. Meanwhile, the Nats are signing Annabelle Sanchez, who just gave up like 12 runs in the (laughs) spring training game today. Uh, So, you know, that's just awesome. Destiny, before we let you go, we want to do some rapid fire with you about the, the Philly season. So first question for you, what place do you think the Phillies uh, finish in, in the NL East and how many wins do you think they have? I think they're a third place team and I would say like 85 wins. I know. I think I was really optimistic last year. And then this year, I just see the Braves as being a complete team and the Mets spent so much money that I, I don't think saying that they could Mets again this year is a little bit difficult to predict. So I'll say third place. I do think it's possible they could win the division. Yeah, that, that's crazy. So, uh, you know, we've interviewed all the, the NL East uh, people so far and the Braves reporter said Braves first, Mets reporter said Mets second, and now you're saying Philly third. So it kind of like fit perfectly. Everyone's kind of on the same page <laughs> there, which is just funny to see. All right, next question, Uh, and it seems like these next two uh, questions, you're going to have a definite favorite for, or seemingly so. Who do you think the Phillies team MVP will be? Uh, Reese Hoskins. And I'm only saying that because I was really high on him. Even before they signed all these guys, I was really high on him having – his career best year he's been dealing with injuries the last two years. And I really think he could benefit from working with Kevin long and possibly cutting down on his very long um, slumps and, you know, benefiting from having, you know, five or six legit hitters around him, get some pitches and hit him out of the park. So I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult for me to say that because it's like Bryce Harper and Nick Castellanos 
all of them could probably be a lot better than Reese, but I think Reese is going to have a big year. I like that pick. It was not the obvious answer. And uh, we love bold takes on here. Yeah. Uh, and he's so, a leader. He's a leader in that clubhouse too. And they, they need more of those guys. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Same question, but for Cy Young, who do you think the Phillies team Cy Young will be? Uh, I'll just, I'll cop out and say Zach Wheeler. <laughs> he's still, he's so good. Yeah, that that's all right. I mean, he's, uh, probably a top 10 pitcher in baseball. You're allowed to, to use that to default to that when you're answering Cy Young. All right. Who's one Phillies player that uh, is kind of a dark horse, maybe isn't getting uh, all of the hype. Uh, who's one player that we need to watch? Um, I don't know. Like if a Phillies fan was listening to this, this might be a cop out, but like, I do like Matt Beerling to be a very good player this year. Um, Phillies really like him just because he hits the ball really hard. Um, I do think he's going to completely take over the center field job. Maybe when Odubel Herrera comes back, there's a platoon, but I think he's going to pull away with that and establish himself to be a pretty good outfielder for the Phillies. I mean, I didn't know who he was, so I'm just fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question for you. What is one bold prediction that you have for the Phillies 2022 season? Oh my God. Um, I mean, 85 wins is kind of bold because typically they're around like the 79 yeah. to 81 <laughs> win. Could, yeah, I'd, it's kind of, it's boring to me that I can't like think of real, like one huge um, prediction. Uh, darn. All right, we're putting you on the spot. I'll go back to Reese Hoskins and say that he, and I don't even know how bold this is, that he will get MVP votes. I like it. Yeah. I don't mind that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned just all the other candidates on the Phillies alone. Like, I think that's pretty bold. I'll allow that. Oh, no. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say another bold one. I don't know how appropriate it is, but I think there will be like a dugout fight this year. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite one we got so far. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like Bryce repeats. Nope. Dugout fight. And I absolutely respect that. <laughs> well, Destiny, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and speaking with with us for the third time it's always a pleasure make sure you guys follow her on twitter at destiny legardo and head on over to philliesnation.com to keep up with all things phillies and if there's a dugout fight this year she'll have all the great coverage on it <laughs> destiny thank you yeah, so i'll much. just say that i i definitely didn't predict that <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna clip it thanks thank you so much Yeah, no problem. Thank you once again to Destiny Lugardo for not only covering the Phillies during that segment, but also coming back a third time, which I know uh, can't be that much fun, but she does it and she does it very well. So you can follow her on Twitter at Destiny underscore Lugardo and check out her work over at Phillies Nation. And that concludes our four in one NL East coverage. Obviously, we focused on all of the division opponents today. Next week, though, we will be covering the Nationals. Obviously, that's who we are. That's what we do. We have multiple interviews coming your way on a deep dive to the 2022 season. 
if spring training is any indication, which I sure hope it's not, it'll be a long season, but that doesn't mean there isn't fun storylines to watch. I'm trying to convince myself of that, but we have uh, professionals coming to help us with that as well. So be sure to be on the lookout for that early next week. And then next week on opening day, we have one of my favorite episodes every single year, our seasons predictions and our awards predictions as well uh, for all of baseball, not just the NLEs or not just the Nationals. So be on the lookout for that as well. We are one week away, people. One week away, opening day. Get yourself ready. And in the meantime, let's go baseball. There's a new breeze blowing off the banks of the Potomac. A new team's mowing down the ranks of their opponents. The Nationals are smashing balls so that the commentator who has the calls has passed the wall to see you later. By the early light of dawn, well, you can see they're running scared. Cause the kinds of bombs we're launching are bursting in the air. Tell the Library of Congress that they might not wanna look. Cause we're putting curly W's in every book. Let's go, Nats. We've got a game to play. We're gonna win today. Let's go. know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry-free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.